and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is really met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening, or afternoon, or whatever. Um, so Maya Elric is going to give the bulk of the Dharma talk this evening, and I'm going to introduce her. And then, because we have one less computer than usual, we have to do a little dance here to turn around the computer for the people in the room here. So Maya, just wait a beat. I'll, I'll tell you when to start, um, but don't start right away. So I asked Maya to come and talk with us, Maya Elric, because she is a geologist, and I thought it would be really interesting to hear about geologic time in our explorations of time, and happily she agreed. She, is, uh, she lives in Albuquerque. She's a professor emerita at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and she's been practicing with Everyday Zen since about 2010, mostly online because of living in Albuquerque. Um, her geologic research has focused on marine sedimentary rocks and how oceans evolved through geologic time. So I don't know what we'll be hearing from her, but I'm really looking forward to it. And now I'm going to turn the computer around so the people in the room can see you, Maya. So hang on just a sec. So you can go ahead, Maya. Thank you. Okay. Hey. Can everyone hear me? Can everyone hear me now? Okay. Well, thank you, Sue, so much for inviting me to give a talk that's something on something that's so near and dear to my heart. And it's an honor and a challenge to be talking to all my Sangha friends. So um, uh, I first met Norman in person at Upaya in 2010 when he came to uh, give a weekend seminar on deep time. He called it deep time and we studied Uji by Dogen. And at that time I was intrigued by that title. I still am intrigued by that title. And because that is, uh, deep time is something geologists call geologic time. And so I thought I would gain some insights into the connections between geology and my Buddhist practice. So let's see if you think there are some connections as I begin talking about geologic time. 
So let me share my screen. So I need to I need to get rid of people's faces so I can see the entire screen. Shufi, can you tell me how to do that? I see a bunch of people instead of... Perhaps we try to uh, put on speaker rather than gallery. Usually I can remove it. Hmm. You got a speaker? Try that. We'll play with on the top your view options. Let me see. So I go to, should I try gallery? There we go. Let me share the screen again. Still. Let's try this. Now I can't see myself, but I can still see everybody else. <laughs> I just need to collapse all those images. Yeah, um, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm wondering if you try to um, to try when you're screen sharing to try up at the top view options. Maybe if you hit the window. Can't drag that window away. I'll bring my computer. Let's see. You know, I'm just gonna keep. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna wing it and um, go ahead and start. I know what my slides look like. Okay, so I want to tell you what I'm going to talk about tonight and. The first thing I'm going to talk about is the age of the earth and how we determine that and then give a few examples of figuring out how we understand such a large number. And then I want to share perspectives on the timing of some of the major events in earth's long history and then talk about um, past mass extinctions to give us a perspective on the ongoing biologic and climatic crisis that we're going through. And then last, how does geologic this geologic time perspective help us cope with the ongoing crisis? So, so our Earth is 4 billion, 500 million, 43, 4 billion, 543 million years old, plus or minus 50 million years. So that's a really large number. So I'm going to round that number to 4 billion 500 million. And that is a number that has 10 numbers in front of the decimal point. And another way to, uh, to write 
that large number is to say 4.5 billion years. And as geologists would write it, we would say 4.5 by for billion years. So how do we get that number? Well, we use a technique called, uh, we use a technique of radioactive decay of particular elements that are found in rocks. And um, some of those elements that radioactively decay are uranium, and that decays to lead, and rubidium going to strontium, and potassium going to argon. Well, we can measure the decay rate of these radioactive elements, and we can measure them to a very precise level. And when we measure the radioactive element and its byproduct in the rock, we can determine how much time has lapsed since that rock formed. And that's how we tell the age of rocks. So using that technique, how do we tell how old the Earth is? Well, this uh, picture up here is a picture of the oldest rocks on Earth that we have ever found. And when we use radioactive decay, we date those at 4 billion years old. So that's not quite 4.5 billion, but it's getting there. And the way we get to the 4.5 billion is we date uh, meteorites that have landed on the Earth. And most of these, I have some images of some examples of meteorites that we have found. And most of those meteorites come from the asteroid belt that lies between Jupiter and Mars. A smaller percentage of them come from Mars and the Moon. And when we date those meteorites that we find on the Earth, the oldest ones cluster at around 4.5 billion years. And because we know that all the planetary bodies formed at the same time, the age of these old planetary bodies that, from our nearest neighbors dating at 4.5 billion tells us that our Earth and all our neighbors and the entire solar system is 4.5 billion. So once again, that's a really big number. And what I want to do is go through a couple of examples of how do you get a handle on this large number. So let's try it first with miles. So in this example, uh, we're going to make one year of geologic time equal to one mile. And the distance between San Francisco and New York City is about 4,000 miles. So to get up to 4.6 billion years or 4.6 billion miles, you'd have to take one and a half million trips across the country to get up to that number. So that's, that's a hard number in itself. One and a half million is a hard number to comprehend. Let's try that using a volume. And we're going to use toilet paper. And we're going to call one sheet of toilet paper one year. And there's about 250 sheets of in a roll of toilet paper. I bet you didn't know that. I had to look that up. And so each roll of toilet paper is about 250 years worth. And that would mean to get up to 4.5 billion sheets of toilet paper, we'd have to have 8 million toilet paper rolls. And this image does not even begin to show 8 million of them. This is a warehouse at Costco. 
and to hold that volume of toilet paper, that would be about 200 semi-tractor trailers carrying that amount of toilet paper. So again, a very large number. Let's try one more analogy, and we're going to use a calendar. I'm curious, can you guys, t when you see my screen, are you seeing people's faces, or can you see the entire screen? Shufi, could you tell me? You can see the entire screen? Yeah. We're doing fine. We're, we're doing fine. Okay, good, good. Okay. So, in this analogy, we're going to take one calendar year, okay? And we're going to stick geologic time in that calendar year. So, the year begins here at the stroke of midnight on December 31st, and then we're going to end the year on December 31st, the next December 31st. So, in this analogy, let's stick in geologic time. And so, the Earth and our, the solar system forms at 4.5 billion years at the stroke of midnight. Halfway through the year at the end of June is 2.2 billion years. And then the present is today, and that is at midnight the following year. So in that analogy, one day in a calendar year is worth 10 million years. And one month is worth 370 million years. So, what I want to do next is put some of the major events in the Earth's history into this context of a calendar year. So, the first event that we're going to talk about is the Moon, the formation of the Moon. And the Moon formed very early after the formation of the Earth. It formed about 4.4 billion years ago. So that's around January 10th. So the Moon formed in, on January 10th, and it formed by a very large asteroid about the size of Mars crashing into the Earth, and the debris from that collision, composed of both Earth material and asteroid material, coalesced to form our Moon at around 4.4 billion or January 10th. The next event, major event, is the first evidence for widespread oceans on our planet. And that occurred around 3.8 billion years ago, or the beginning of March. The next event is evidence for the first life forms on Earth. And that happened around 3.5 billion years ago, and that life form formed in those oceans. And here's some images of those first life forms. They're called stromatolites, and they're these bulbous heads. There's a geologic hammer for scale. And when you cut into these stromatolite heads, you can see multiple layers. And what they're composed of are single-celled bacterial mats and these are prokaryotes, and they formed in the oceans, and they photosynthesize, so they form oxygen. So they're forming the first oxygen that is going to make our reducing atmosphere more oxidizing. So those are our first life forms in the oceans and on the planet. The next major event 
is uh, the, me the, the detection of oxygen in the atmosphere. And that happened in about 2.5 billion years ago, and that would be early May. And it took that much time for the stromatolites to generate enough oxygen to actually measure in those early, early atmospheres and in the early oceans, the surface oceans. The next event about a billion years later is evidence for the first eukaryotes. And this is a major biologic milestone. These are um, uh, life forms where the DNA and the cell nucleus is protected by a membrane. So this allowed a much more complex life form to develop. But these first eukaryotes were still single-celled, a single cell, and they are still in the ocean. The next event is about over a billion years later it took for multicellular life to develop. And we're multicellular, obviously, and that happened at around uh, 0.6 billion years ago or 600 million years ago. And that life, again, is still in the ocean. We only have life in the ocean at this point in time. The next um, major event are proto-vertebrates. And these are our ancestors. And they, I'm showing you a picture of a fossil of one of these proto-vertebrates. They're about three inches long. And you may be able to see this notochord forming along here. That's that proto-backbone. And this is called Pykaea. And here's an artist's rendition of Pykaea swimming in the ocean. And that's our ancestor, a little bit older than Dogen. And that's um, our first proto-vertebrates. Our next event is land plants. We finally are starting to colonize the continents. And that happens around 400 million years ago. And those land plants uh, then quickly allow the colonization of continents by land animals. They provide food and habitat for those land animals. And that happens around uh, um, 400 million years ago. And now I'm going to have to change scales because there's a lot happening towards the end of this calendar year. So now I'm going to change the scale here, and I'm just going to show you the last month of the year of December. And there are the land animals that evolved, and it's halfway through December where reptiles and mammals evolve. And then uh, around Christmas time in this example, 65 million years ago, a very large asteroid about seven miles in diameter hits near Yucatan, Mexico and causes a major extinction. And this is when many organisms go extinct, including the dinosaurs. And that happened around Christmas time. Now I'm gonna to have to change scales again. And in this case, now I'm just talking about the last hour of the year. So we're here at 11 o'clock at night and we're going to midnight. And at about 11.30 p.m., Homo sapiens in Africa evolved. And then about 19 seconds before midnight, Buddha lived. And here we go. Most of us here on the seminar tonight 
a half a second before midnight, we're born. So our lifetime represents about a half a second in this analogy. So at this point, I just want to pause and reflect on this concept that um, our lifetime in this analogy is only a half a second. And maybe in our breakout rooms, we want to talk about how this makes us feel. You know, does it make us feel connected? Does it make us feel Um, hopeless? Does it make us feel inconsequential? But it puts geologic time in a bit, and our lives in a bit more perspective. Next, I want to talk about extinctions. And um, extinctions are always happening in geologic time as well as speciation occurring. So extinctions are when something goes uh, away forever, and speciation is the formation of new species through time. And this is always occurring, but when we talk about a mass extinction, paleontologists have a different definition, and that's when more than 75% of all the species go extinct globally. And that occurs in less than a few million years. So. Let's look at the history of the diversity of life through geologic time. So in this figure, it is showing you the diversity of life over the last 600 million years of time. So this horizontal axis is just a portion of geologic time, 600 million or 0.6 billion to today. And I've put our calendar time scale down at the bottom. So we're really only talking about a part of November and December of geologic time. And on the, on the vertical axis is the number of families in, uh, in biology. And these are distinctly, uh, this is just um, here on the, on the left-hand side, you see, I want to remind you how biologists subdivide life. They divide it into seven categories, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus. And this plot that I am showing you is at the family level, so sort of in the middle. And um, we're just plotting the ocean and that are invertebrates. And they only paleontologists are plotting invertebrate Fam, marine families because it's not until about 400 million years ago that vertebrates and land life evolved. So we need to be able to plot a, a set of organisms that were alive around throughout this time interval and that has to, the only ones we can use are marine invertebrates. So let's look at the patterns over this 600 million years of time. In early November, there are little or no families yet, and then around uh, 550 million years ago, the number of families increase, and then they rapidly increase, and then they crash. About 100 families go extinct, and then they recover, and they stay relatively stable through time, and then they crash again. Another about 100 families go extinct. And then they recover in a stepwise fashion. 
and stay pretty stable over time. And then a huge crash of about 200 families go extinct. And then they recover, they go ex another 100 families go extinct, and then they recover over a long period of time. Then there's another crash, and then they recover to today. So these five major crashes of are the big five extinctions that have affected our planet over the last 600 million years. And they're called the big five, and I've marked them with these red dashed lines. Now, I'm showing you this at the family level, but if we equate those on the right-hand side with how many species went extinct during these big five, we can see that uh, at the lowest level, the big, the, the, the big four, the fourth one, 70% uh, of species went extinct, but this biggest one here, 95% of all species went extinct at this point in time. This is called the big killing, yet it recovered. So let's look at some of the patterns of these extinctions over the, of the big five. Um, the shortest recurrence is about 50 million years between extinctions here. The longest is about 150 million years. The extinction itself, that event, varies in time from a few hundred years to a few million years. And the work that has been done over the many decades tells us that it's not one single trigger that is doing these extinctions. It's multiple triggers that are doing it. And that the recovery time after these extinctions are a few million years. And that's shown with these red arrows where the number of families recovers back to previous values and get even higher. So what are the triggers of these past big extinctions? They're listed here. The first is ocean acidification caused by high CO2 levels. Oxygen loss in the oceans or anoxia because obviously animals need oxygen. Uh, dramatic cooling or warming of the atmosphere in the oceans. And habitat loss. And in the ancient times, that habitat loss is mainly through sea level, global sea level falls, exposing uh, the continental shelf and reducing the habitat area for marine animals. So the next obvious question is, how do these big five extinctions compare to our modern or our sixth extinction? And first I have to say that there's complications with comparing the past extinctions with the modern. And the first major complication is because we're comparing just marine invertebrates for the past, yet most of our extinction data for the modern extinction comes from land animals. So it is difficult to compare between the two, and we don't have as good of record for modern marine extinction, marine animal extinctions, because most of them are underwater. The second complication is that biologists have only been able to identify less than 10% of all the species on the planet. So we cannot say that a species gone extinct if we haven't identified it in the first place. 
So any extinction rate calculation is biased by the fact that we just haven't even identified all the species that are there. And the third major complication is the difference in time resolution between the modern and the ancient. In the modern, we can resolve extinctions at the annual or the decadal timescales, and in the ancient, at best, our resolution is at tens of thousands of years, and it's usually at the millions of years timescale. But regardless of that, those biologists that are working on the six mass extinctions predominantly argue that yes, the six mass extinction has started. The extinction rates are similar to the big five mass extinction rates. There are more triggers on the sixth extinction that is causing it, and there is no telling when it will end. For sure, it's not going to end in our lifetime. So what are the triggers for this sixth mass extinction? Again, it's ocean acidification, ocean anoxia, this time by warming of the oceans and by lots of fertilizers going in the ocean. It's by uh, warming of our atmosphere and our oceans. Habitat loss, instead of the sea level changes, it's due to development deforestation, and agriculture. And these two last ones are not, for the, uh, are not two triggers for the ancient one because humans weren't around for those. And these two new ones are over-exploitation by overfishing and overhunting, and by pollution with mainly pesticides and metals and plastics in our oceans. So, um, it's bad. The sixth extinction is bad. It's big. And it's not going away soon. It's not going to go away in our lifetime or in the next couple of centuries. And that's because CO2, even if we are to end CO2 input into the atmosphere today, CO2 has a time span in the atmosphere of many hundreds of years to thousands of years. So the triggers of our sixth extinction are not going to go away anytime soon. So how do we deal with this knowledge? How do we sleep at night with this knowledge? I don't know about you, but I think about this daily. And I worry, and I'm frustrated, and I often feel hopeless. And I am so grateful for my practice so we can look this, these afflicted emotions straight, straight and look at them. And I'm so grateful for the geologic perspective that I have and I've tried to share with you today. And some of those perspectives I've summarized here and the first is that Earth had no complex life for most of its existence. In fact, complex life only came in in our calendar analogy in November. So most of the time, there was no life. But once complex life did evolve, nothing has been, perma has been permanently able to stop it. 
it always recovers. And those biologic recoveries after the big five mass extinctions occurred in less than a few million years. And in our calendar example, that's six hours. Recovery within six hours. And then the last is that Earth as a planet will endure for another five or 10 billion years or until the sun dies. So with or without us, this earth will endure. And it's, it's those main geologic perspective, geologic time perspectives that help me sleep better at night. And I'm hoping that some of these perspectives can help you. And um, we might talk about some of these things in our breakout group. And I will leave you with this image of our beautiful blue marble in space and hope to get some questions from you after Sue talks. Thank you very much for listening. Now we have to do a little change. all here. Now I have to get my talk hang on. Um, Are you seeing me in two different tiles? My, um, well, I guess it's, it doesn't matter. I think I might be on Zoom in two places at once, and I don't really. Can I close this one? Can I? Yeah, the video off, so you're okay. Oh, I do. Oh, okay. Okay. So. Wow, thank you so much, Maya, for bringing us that long, long view. It's very moving and really, it's deep time, all right. Yeah, the life story of our planet. So thank you for your generosity in preparing this and offering your own feelings about it and how your practice uh, 
connects to these pieces of knowledge you have about the planet. And as Maya said, save your questions because we'll come back to them. So I, I had a few things I wanted to say to end our series on time. Uh, bringing yet a slightly different perspective in again. Um, and before I get to that different perspective about lifespans and human lifespans, I wanted to refer to what I said at the last week when I spoke. I talked about, I confessed how much I struggle with time and how hard it is for me to get everything done in a timely manner. And I vowed in the following week, which was last week, not to struggle. I said, time and I can go along together. And I said, I'll hold hands with time. And I promised to report back to you. So first, I'm going. This is my report back. Um, so the the metaphor of holding hands with time came up quite spontaneously. I was surprised when those words came out of my mouth. And driving home from the seminar last week, I thought, Yes, that's it. Exactly. Exactly. I am holding hands with time. I'm holding hands with time. I'm going steady with time. I'm going along with time. We're going along together at the same pace, right up to the end of my life. I can trust time. And however fast time is going by, it can't pass me up because I'm going right along with it. It's like Dogen said, do not think that time merely flies away. If time merely flies away from you, you would be separated from time. But I'm not separated from time, and neither are you. So I recommend to you this practice of holding hands with time. Or if you're not into holding hands, if that seems infantilizing, you can link arms or maybe even go along shoulder to shoulder. <coughs> All through this past week, I've been actually thinking about this metaphor and, and stuck with me. And it's been quite helpful. I've been feeling like I'm stepping into each moment with time, holding my hand or not, noticing each moment, oh, look, this is the moment of opening the tube of toothpaste. What a treat. Each little moment seems like a new entry. So it's been really good way of looking at things, but I do have to admit that I have, in spite of all of this, I have not been totally organized about preparing my talk for tonight as I had hoped. The job of preparing for tonight still followed Parkinson's law and it took up all the time I had for it. But I have been much less anxious, so I have been going along with time and feeling like, well, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to do it and maybe I'm doing it in this weird way, but it's all okay. So I, I wanted to think about, in this last part, I didn't know exactly what Maya was going to say, but I knew it was going to be a really long perspective. And then I thought that we haven't talked about, or I haven't brought up anything about the human lifespan and what is our lifespan, what does that mean? And compared, as Maya has just demonstrated to us in a very palpable way, Earth has had such a long life compared to the lifespan of the human species that we can hardly even find a pinprick. And the lifespan of one individual human is even more of a pinprick. 
So we can say that our lives are just a blink in the eye of the universe. But we don't experience our lives as a blink. Is my life long or is it short? So I looked up some statistics about life expectancy. And it keeps changing these numbers depending on what's going on. The average, right now, the average life expectancy for all human beings over the whole world is 73. And in 1950, it was 47. So that is a staggering change in a pretty short amount of time. Um, I expect due a lot to medical or health discoveries about treating diseases and a host of factors that I don't know what they all are, but it certainly is a big change. Um, if I was born today, my life expectancy would be 80. Well, I am 80, but that doesn't mean that now I have to die today because um, that is the life expectancy for somebody who is born today and it's an average. But now that I'm 80, I looked up in some trepidation. Well, what is my life expectancy right now as an 80-year-old American woman? I thought, well, this is going to tell me when I'm going to die. And I looked up and it said, I have nine years left. So those are the actuarial charts. You know, really, it has nothing whatever to do with me. So it was a weird thing to look up and say, oh, I've got nine years. And I think, well, this has nothing to do with me. Maybe I don't, maybe I do. So, so what does it really mean to think about these, these time spans? And it, it should have said, when I looked up, how long am I going to live? It should have said, you have an infinite succession of vast moments ahead of you. Because that's also true. When you think of time as a thing you have, then the more of it you have, the better. But it isn't really just the thing we have. We know that now. What about how you experience time? Different population groups within the US and around the world have different life expectancies. And in the US, there are big differences, revealing serious inequities in our society. Poor health care, pollution, exploitation, racism, all of these are problems that need to be addressed. And adding more years to a life is not really the goal in itself, although it's a likely effect of addressing these social factors. The idea that more, more years is better um, just in and of itself is kind of a false idea. Um, but it could be good. <laughs> the, the possible human lifespan is getting longer and longer thanks to advances in medical science. And some researchers are predicting that by the year 2100, quite a few people will be living to the age of 130. Is this good? Is this what we want? Maybe if there are any people living by the year 2100, we're going to be happy about that. <laughs> um, Really, uh, what does it mean to live longer? When people used to live so much shorter, did they have different expectations about their lives? Uh, so different creatures live for different lengths of time. At the short end, certain midges, otherwise known as noceums, live for only a few days as adults. And in this time, they're all swarming around on their new wings and mating, and the female is biting me and other mammals in order to nourish the eggs inside her with their blood. Then she lays the eggs and dies. 
She has a lot to do in a few days, but I doubt that she's bothered by the shortness of her life in any way. When she's laying her eggs, she's doing it with her whole self fully present in her life. And I'm imagining that the present moment is infinite for her. Of course, I'm anthropomorphizing somewhat. I don't think she's thinking about time, but she has all the time she needs. Smaller creatures live shorter lives and they also take up less space. A human's house is a lot bigger than a mouse's house, but the mouse doesn't feel crowded in its cozy nest in a box of old tax returns in my attic. It's just the right size, uh, right amount of space for a mouse. Could it be the same with time? A mouse lives about a year and a half, a 50th of a human life, but the mouse probably thinks that's plenty of time for a life. I'm thinking of Korean teacher Sun Sun Nim's teaching of enough mind. He said we should cultivate the mind that says I have enough, I have everything I need. Could we also cultivate the mind that says I have all the time I need? Now, I want to tell you about heartbeats. You might know about this, but strangely, all birds and animals have about the same number of heartbeats, or at least in the same order of magnitude, a billion or two no matter how big they are or how long they live. An elephant lives about 70 years and a hummingbird lives about two. An elephant weighs about 10,000 pounds and a hummingbird weighs about as much as a penny, but they both get a billion heartbeats. An elephant's heart beats 30 times a minute. A hummingbird's averages about 600 beats a minute. So, that's pretty amazing. It's amazing that we all have hearts, all these animals. That in itself amazes me. Animals, birds, fish, reptiles, we all have hearts. There are plenty of life forms that don't have hearts, and I don't want to be heart-centric here, but it is amazing that all of these things have this kind of pump that's keeping us going, and it's providing the rhythm of our lives. If you think of a heartbeat, as the essential unit of time, because it's not the same length of time measured in seconds, but maybe it's the same length of time for each being, because we all have the same number of them. So maybe a heartbeat is the essential moment, and we're going through our lives heartbeat to heartbeat, even though we're not feeling each one. Um, we get that, those are our moments. We get one moment after another in that way. So, um, I'm going to just finish up with saying that we are here now in this moment and this one, and in each moment you're given the time to offer what you have to offer in this moment, now, and now is a really big moment because it keeps opening up over and over. And it turns out when you look back that you had exactly the right amount of time to do each thing you did in the past because you did it. So trust that the same will be true going forward. Trust time, trust yourself. We take the Bodhisattva vows together to save sentient beings. And we'll be saying those vows at the end of our meeting. We all want to attend to the suffering of life on this planet. We're all thinking about what Maya shared with us, 
when we give our attention to something like this, we give our time. And when we give our time, we are giving ourselves because we're made out of time. And when we give ourselves, we're giving love. We're going beyond our separate selves and we're doing it all together. A little voice in my head and maybe in yours says, well, these abstract words are all very pretty, but how is that going to make our desperate situation any better? Here's what we can do in this vein of speaking. We can realize that we are made out of time and we can act out of that understanding. As the law of karma tells us, beneficial actions produce beneficial results and that takes time. Dogen says, vigorously abiding in each moment is the time being. That's the attention, that's the energy we bring to each moment. We can be here now, we can practice giving our whole selves to each moment. We can practice not taking, but giving. We can remember together that we're all connected in the time being. So I'm going to give the last word to, go, to Dogen. This was our refrain last week. In essence, all things in the entire world are linked together with one another as moments. Because all moments are the time being, they are your time being. And I will say they are our time being, all of us together. So that's where I will end my talk. And I think um, what we can do is go into, do our breakout groups. And then after the breakout groups, we can have a discussion and we can even have a chance to ask questions of Maya. So please hold on to those questions. Um, so um, I think if we, let's see, let's, let's do, um, Shufi, can we do breakout groups of three, but to have them be a little on the short side, we'll come back and be ready to talk at uh, 25 of. So, um, so bring us back a little bit before that even. So you, you might just give yourselves three minutes each or something like that in your breakout groups. And the question Maya um, posed was, maybe you could, would you like to say it again, Maya? Can you do that? I would like to uh, suggest that how does it feel knowing that in our calendar example our lifetimes are only a half a second or anything else you want to talk about thank you okay so we'll get into groups of three here in the room and online too thank you.